Hello, everyone. Welcome to BYOB Podcast. Uh, I'm sure you've come across the pod before, but if you haven't, a very warm welcome if it's your first time listening. This is our first, I would say, first proper episode of 2024. We did a, uh, a really nice one last week where we gave you lots of the films to look out for this year. And the week before that, we picked out our best films of 2023. But we're back into the swing this week. With an absolute if it's your first one, sorry to, I'm sorry to interrupt, mate, but if it's your first one now, what are you playing at? Which problem? Right. That's Jack, Hurry by up. the way. Hi, I'm yeah. Ben. What's go, and listen, listen, go and listen to the rest, you scruds. Um, exactly. Uh, but hello, welcome. Please stay. <laughs> yeah, don't go away. <laughs> um, I'm Ben. That was Jack Hussey. How are you, Jack? I'm good, thanks, mate. I'm, I'm a bit cut. I'm wearing today uh, a BYOB first. I'm wearing a little beanie hat. Are you actually? I've done that. I've done that cold. before. I've done that before on episodes and I've actually felt bad for not saying it to you during the episode <laughs> that maybe i should sort of just back ref it and just, just so you know just so you don't get a shock as we go on as we go online that i'm actually here being a bit of a wuss but i'm glad that you're you feel comfortable enough in this environment Snowing. Snowing oh mate today today i got outside so at the time of recording it's a it's a day that is very slowly across the UK and there's floods everywhere. I got outside and it smelt like snow. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You get out and you're like, it smells cold. What is going on? Mm. Absolutely brutal. A chill. A yeah, chill. A, a proper chill. I'm, do you know what? I'm going to remind everyone now as well. If you have a spare five seconds while you're listening to go and give us a, a review and a, a rating, the rating bit is literally two seconds. And a review, you can just say, love Ben and Jack, they're the best people of all time. Please listen. Mm. Um, that's great. It's really helpful. And to make sure you subscribe to the uh, the YouTube channel if you haven't done that and get involved on the socials as well. Okay, now after that shameless plug for all of our social media and to try and get us boosted up the rankings, um, how has your week been, mate? You've, you've really outdone yourself here. First week of January, you've already done two cinema trips. Uh, no, no, just the one. Just the one. Just okay. the one. So, yeah, right. one, one of those is a Netflix release. One of the films that I am to talk about. But yeah, we did. We done one on. I believe we went on New Year's Day. It's almost. I think it's a Ooh, bit of a kind of thing? tradition. Some people would do Boxing Day. It's not really for me that. Um, but New Year's Day, yeah, I like to do because New Year's Day is always a, a, a bit depressing, isn't it? I find it really hard. I'm not sure if people are listening feel the same, but I mm. find the period... I've started finding Christmas a bit more difficult than I used to, and I find the period in between Christmas and New Year very strange, and then this early part of the year very, very difficult as well. And I know that's not... I'm hardly like tearing up trees by saying that, but it's... Um, it's very difficult to get going again, isn't it? To really get yourself... Mm. Li- get like level again you know when you wake up and you, you feel like you're starting the day from a good point i feel like it's, it's quite tough at the moment and i never feel that um that well rested going into the new year because it's always so hectic especially in the sort of jobs that we do you know what it's like it gets very hectic leading up to christmas before everyone goes on holiday and you work so much you do so many extra hours and whatever and then you have a couple of days off for Christmas and then bang, you're right back into it again. You think, Straight back I haven't even had an holiday, you know? But boo-hoo, poor me. You know, we're not, we're not frontline uh, well, NHS cinema. workers or anything. So did have the cinema, mate. Did have the cinema. And that was, uh, that was nice. And um, so was it One Life that you saw at the cinema? 
Yeah. I saw one. Should I talk about One Life? Should we do that? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that first. Okay, so One Life is uh, Anthony Hopkins' film. It's based on the true story of Sir Nicholas Winton now, um, Nicholas Winton at the time, who during the Second World War was a, a stockbroker. Um, and in the months leading up to World War II, he visited Prague. Um, and while he was there in Prague, he saw lots of young, lots of families young children, predominantly Jewish families, living in ghettos on the outskirts of Prague who were fleeing from, you know, the Nazi expansion across Europe at the time. And one of the lines they use in the film is that he's saying that, you know, we have to help these people. So he hatches a plan to save these children. Um, some people call him like the British Schindler in some ways. So with the film centres in the two different time periods. It goes back to 1930s, when Nicholas Winton is played by Johnny Flynn, and it comes back to the 1980s when Nicholas Winton is played by Anthony Hopkins. And what you see, uh, the two ends of the scale, you see a Nicholas Winton who in the 1930s is, like I say, working hard on this plan to evacuate children and put them up with foster homes in the, in the UK. And for anybody that's seen Schindler's List, you have a similar kind of arc there where you have the now aged Nicholas Winton in the 1980s living this you know very comfortable upper middle class um, life in the leafy suburbs of you know one of the home counties who is racked by this strange sense of guilt strange sense of guilt this sense that he didn't do enough that he could have done more um, I, I make the comparison with Schindler's List because you see in the very moving final scene where Schindler is racked by a similar sense of guilt, guilt, even though he's done so much, he's saying, look, there could have been more names, there could have been more people I could have helped here. It's a similar thing with Nicholas Winton. The vessel that he used for this is Nicholas Winton basically packing up his old office. His wife is telling him, look, you don't need this office anymore. You've got all these old files. You've got all these things. He starts clearing out his office. And what he happens to come across is an old dossier full of names and full of information about all of these children that he helped to rehouse during World War II. And this sends him down this, this journey. And he sort of thinks, hey, you know what? There's actually quite an interesting story here. He's told this by his daughter. He's told this by his wife. People, this needs, this belongs in a museum. This story, people need to hear this. I'll leave it at that. I mean, many people will know kind of where the story goes from here. But for those that don't, you know, you can watch the actual footage on YouTube or you can just watch the movie. Um, I mean, it's, it's, what I would say of the film is it's, a, it's an incredibly, incredibly moving story. Um, it's. Do they get it right? Yeah, they do. It's not. It's not salacious. It's not mawkish. It's not overly melodramatic or anything like that. It's actually a very understated portrayal of a story with a with a large emotional heft to it, right? Um, and it's. I mean, you know, Anthony Hopkins is a is an absolute master at what he does. We all know this, so you, you know you're in good hands when he's in charge of a, a film like this. And Johnny Flynn, who plays the younger Nicholas Winton as well, is actually in brilliant form. You've got a Helena Bonham Carter in there, who in the 1930s plays Nicholas Winton's mother. She's brilliant, as you as you would expect her to be. Um, and the story is... the st- Look, the, the, I don't want to sound harsh when I say this, but the story, to me, 
is what does a lot of the the heavy lifting here like it it it, it floors you it really does the 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 gravitas of what nicholas winton achieved um and the ripple effect that it has in humanity you know the, the, the film is called one life because there's a saying that is used within the film um which is save one life you save the world um and, you know we are talking about this kind of butterfly effect um we can talk about you know i, I can I, i'm happy to talk about on this like you know my my wife exists because her great grandmother was canny enough to essentially hatch a plan to see her grandfather my my wife's grandfather her son escape from a train that was headed to a death camp during world war ii in which wow. you know her, her her grandparents were both murdered at this death camp upon arrival he was on that headed for that um sobibor in uh yeah in poland and you know the i you know i i feel that pretty profoundly i feel that profoundly that wow. you know that you know that, that my wife my life exists because of the actions of somebody you know in a in a moment of you know clarity thought to do something and it, and it worked and various other people that helped charlotte's grandfather along the way members of the dutch resistance and such that saw this young boy who was wandering the hills on his own picked up and looked after and whatever and, and that's what the film focuses on the film focuses on the goodness of people we're often sort of led to believe people are all crap we watch the news all this terrible stuff happens but between the gaps, between these terrible stories, between these awful actions committed by terrible people, there are always good people. There are always good people doing good things. And we don't focus on that enough. We don't talk about that enough. And we don't sometimes value or see the actions in ourselves doing good things and the ripple effect that that can have down the line. And that's what this film focuses on. And it's a very powerful message the film itself is like i say it's not it's i don't think it's going to blow you away as as a movie i saw one particularly critical man which i I didn't agree with but as we were walking out of the cinema said that was like a made for tv film um (laughs) which you know was quite funny but it maybe maybe that kind of gives you an idea of the tone you know it's a low budget british production and i again as i often say on here I think sometimes people don't realise how hard it is to get movies made, how hard it is, especially in countries like Britain, to get movies made, movies that aren't of existing IPs, especially. Um, So I think you have to appreciate every single film that gets made, um, especially from smaller film industries in Europe, in Britain, where the aunts aren't particularly valued at the moment under i'm not going to start going into a political rant but we've seen over the past decade or so the the attack on the arts in this country um and the way it's been kind of taken for granted so you know i think to get to get a film made and to get a film made with that has a message that is uh, you know as profound as this has you know jonathan price is in this film as well there's some there's some real big you know, there's some yeah there's some there's some there's some big performances in here from some big big actors um it's just like don't what i mean by this is don't go into this and expect schindler's list high, which is you know high budget high production are we sort of um and not to in any way kind of 
make these films sound more grandiose or to play down uh, one life. But are we talking kind of the pilgrimage of Harold Fry, Calendar Girls style British production, recognisable faces, kind of, you can see why someone says, oh, that was a made for TV film because of budget and look and, and things like that. But it's got a lot of heart to it. Precisely that. The world feels smaller. It feels more enclosed. Right. You know, we're not talking, even though it is, you know, a, a sort of pan-European story that is being told, it's mainly conversations in rooms and things like that, right? Yeah. You're not yeah. seeing, you're not seeing the, 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 I don't even want to say the action of World War Two, but do you know what I mean? The, sure, of course, the, of course. The, the fighting and such. Um but like to I say, fair, this... I thought of that with um, Darkest Hour. Darkest Hour was yeah. a was a brilliant film. You didn't really see. I mean, the vast vast majority of that took place in the the war rooms and and Parliament. You know, it didn't really go hugely out of there, did it? And I felt like when it did, and that un- tube scene was probably the weakest element of it. You know, mm. Mm. I mean, look. Either way, it's. It's it, it, look. There's a there's a there's a strong message to this film. As I say, there's a big heart to it. Um, I would, yeah, I would recommend people do go and see it with a with an open mind and just yeah consider consider doing a good thing yourself. You know, that's that's kind of uh, that's sort of the way I, I you know that's nice because it, it's pretty yeah it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. I love it. And do you know what? While we're on the subject of doing good things, I believe we're going to sort of make a fairly like nice impassioned plea for um, for people to be a little bit nicer to Zack Snyder. Yeah, because uh, the other film I watched this week, but it was on Netflix, was Rebel Moon. Um, the much anticipated... Zack Schneider Star Wars film that isn't a Star Wars film. Um, <laughs> if you know the the backstory to this, he apparently pitched this to uh, to Lucas Arts. Um, I'm not sure exactly when. I see sort of contrasting reports, but it seems to be around maybe ten to fifteen years or there or thereabouts ago. Um, and from that point, he's taken it around to various different studios see who wants to get it made at one point i think it was going to get developed into a video game but it right. seems to have found its home on netflix um where it's been developed into being a, a, a two-part movie um the first one being rebel moon part one a child of fire look you know rebel moon has come in for some absolute pelters it seems to be that most reviews i look on rotten tomatoes i think last time i looked it was on about 24 percent with the critics on rotten tomatoes i think it was resting on about 70 percent from the audience score um and i i noticed there's this kind of gleeful evisceration of zach schneider that's pretty routine um nowadays which if i'm honest I find all a bit boring and I find all a bit bad faith. Before we spoke, before I spoke about this, I actually did look into, I wanted to see, has Zack Schneider, is, has he had any kind of, are there any skeletons in his closet? You know, are we talking about, are there any, is there anything around any, like, I'm not going to name, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to just use 
other people's pain as some throwaway thing to say has he done that no so what's the problem but as far as i can see there's no skeletons in his closet it seems to be that people just don't really like that he makes kind of fairly shallow high action movies right i've seen some people lean towards saying that there's a lot of conservative moralizing within his movies but he's even addressed that himself he said he votes Democrat. He's campaigned for the Democrats. He's a liberal guy. Um, there's no gotcha here. There's no secret kind of Trump supporter in his in his closet or anything. It seems to be that people really don't like him. And I think one thing that really got me this week is um, Kermode and Mayo's podcast. And I think, honestly speaking, like I don't I don't really want to fire shots at people doing their job, but the producers as well of Kermode and Mayo's podcast to read this out, I think was pretty poor um and the person was just saying that whoever it was that wrote in to talk about the film was basically saying look Zack Schneider is a guy that has obviously not experienced enough in his life he has no lived experience to make films that are this shallow and are this ambiguous it takes you probably a a minute of researching Zack Schneider to see that that really isn't the case Zack Schneider you know trigger warning for anybody here talking about kind of, you know, self-harm, suicide and such. His daughter committed suicide in 2020. And from that point, he's gone on to help suicide prevention charities, to help with young people's mental health charities, has spoken very candidly, very openly, very delicately about the pain and grief he and his family have felt as a result of this. And also speaks very self-effacingly and with very good grace and very good humour about the fact that his films are a bit of a meme, but generally meets it with this sense of, these are the movies I want to make. I have fun making them. I think a lot of people have fun watching my films. And that's enough for me. And I just think sometimes people need to extend a bit more grace to people. Um, And it's not to say you can't criticise his films because he's gone through an immense personal tragedy but at the same time, let's just have a bit of understanding for somebody. Let's not just kind of use somebody as a figure to pile on to completely take the piss out of because you think his films are a bit basic, because you think his films are just kind of pew-pew, let's shoot stuff in space, which, let's be honest, they are. You know what I'm like. You know I don't particularly like Marvel films. You know I don't really like superhero movies. And I, I, I thought Rebel Moon was actually okay. I thought it was fun. I thought it was fine enough. Did I think it was unbelievable? Will I really be revisiting it? No, probably not. Like, but it was okay. It was okay for a couple of hours to slap on in the period between kind of just after New Year's to watch something to just try and relax a little bit. Um, it was absolutely fine for that. Um, I just, I just like I say, I just I think what's rankled me a little bit lately is this kind of pile on culture with him that I think gets a bit ugly. Um, and I think sometimes people just need to check themselves. It's all a bit, a bit easy, isn't it? It is easy and it's boring. It just became the done thing, didn't it? To to pile in, pile on, sorry, and just to yeah. just to kind of like jump on it as well. Um, but in terms of the, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of looking into that the Star Wars thing there because you get the impression that uh, it, a film like that is going to struggle. Rebel Moon is going to struggle if it feels close to but not the real deal with something like Star Wars, you know? 
because we've seen those films we've seen those films in terms of Rogue One for example where they've committed enough you're like oh I can really get into this but we've also seen the other side of it with films that are that are kind of what what was the other one that was it was it the Wachowskis one was it Cloud Atlas was that was that was that Wachowski's Cloud Atlas? Think so, yeah, it was. Maybe. It was. It was the Wachowskis, and it just never really happened. You know. Mm. Um, uh, do you, sir, want to jump onto this week's film that we watched? It was so nice, wasn't it? Getting back into the idea of sitting down and watching a film for for BYOB and sort of going like, right, okay, we can get stuck into this. Um, tell us what it was. It was one of my very favourite films of all time. Kill Bill. Top five for you? Top ten? Top five. Wow. And when was the last time you watched it? Watched it uh, maybe a year or so ago in the cinema for the 20th anniversary. They rescreened it in the cinemas. Oh, wow. That, I mean, like, that must have been a a bit of a treat, that as well. Because it so lends itself to that, doesn't it? Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a bittersweet experience. It was quite weird to suddenly be like, "Wow, twenty years, eh?" C- yeah. Considering I remember seeing the first one in the cinema when it first came out as well. Can I blow like your mind fun- a bit? Go on. The, uh, the <laughs> I was listening to Uma Thurman talk today about how um, she was channeling this idea of motherhood in the film because she just had a little baby <laughs> who is now yeah. in stranger things and loads of amazing films. Maya Hawke is like old enough to potentially come on to kill bill three. You know, yeah. isn't that so people crazy? have spoken about that as well. Haven't they? They've isn't said it? like get her back as BB and uh... just incredible. I mean, I mean, we'll go into all of this. Don't worry, we'll go into all of this. But is that why you picked it? Just because it's a real sort of belter? It's one of those that you just will always love. I think it's a real belter. I think it's to me. It's always, it's been representative. Like I say, after I came out of the cinema of this, thinking how films are different now, how our culture is so different that a film that is not an existing IP that is this sprawling story about a load of characters that nobody knows about. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're, it's a completely original story. Um, to have the sort of cultural impact that it did, I don't know if that happens today. I really don't know if that happens anymore. And I don't I don't want to fall into the trap of sounding like one of these old, oh, it was different in my day type things. But, you know, it was already tenuous at that point. It was already, things were going the way they are now. But when you look at like most movies, you know, people talk about Ridley Scott getting a film about Napoleon made being a miracle, you know? Mm. Like, mm. and it kind of almost makes me feel guilty about gunning it. But this is kind of where the film industry is at right now. Um, there aren't new IPs. There aren't new ideas, really. Those aren't getting made. Those or those aren't getting funded as much, shall we say. Those aren't getting the big billings at cinemas. Those aren't dominating screens. They're getting a week, two showings in the smallest screening room in the Odeon whilst basically... Taylor Swift or the latest Marvel film takes up eight screens in the cinema, right? 
you know this is this mm. is this is what it is like now i just think for a, for a movie like this like i say to permeate every facet of culture in the way that it did from the old like Ironside music suddenly coming back into the public consciousness from the Lonely Shepherd being a track that pretty much everybody was hearing that would be on the radio, the five, six, seven, eight, woohoo, like on every bloody advert, on every radio God, wasn't for, it? Wasn't for it? years. Do you remember years when they were years on? Years. Jonathan Ross brought them on Friday night of Jonathan Ross. Sorry to like sort of age nah, us but... again there, but like Friday Night with Jonathan Ross on BBC was actually a really, really big thing. Like that is where you would have got Uma Thurman. I mean, I remember, I think Uma Thurman went on Friday Night with Jonathan Ross to promote the film. And I think they had, was it, are they called the Five, Six, Seven, Eights? Yeah. Yeah. And that they had, he had them on doing that song. I mean, it, it really was. There's another one of these that kind of like, it, it screamed into mainstream culture. It's it's just, it, and it's so, I think this is one of those things I appreciate the older I've gotten. And I've appreciated probably at, only at this age now really is the idea of, because I think sometimes when, when you're younger at the time, when I was younger, it was like, well, of course this movie's going to be massive. This is Quentin Tarantino film. It's really cool. It's got loads of action and it's kind of lost on you a bit the older you get and the more you try and like work on your own stuff or just see friends working on things or whatever, when you just imagine something that is an idea in somebody's head that has been written, that has been pitched, that has been produced, that has been made, that has been broadcast or, you know, screened to become something more than just a movie for it to become a huge to be, for it to become a thing, for it to become a cultural landmark and so many different parts of that to become a cultural landmark. It's just, it's astonishing. It's such an achievement. Um, and I think in, in many ways, there's so many, even if you haven't seen Kill Bill, which, you know, if you haven't sorted that out, but even if you haven't seen Kill Bill, you'll have seen the imprint, the fingerprint of Kill Bill on pretty much every single action movie since it was made you know in some way or another um it, it was just massive it's really it's really hard to is it is one of those like you weren't there man but if you, if you literally if you don't really remember like what this was like when it came along it's it's really hard to do it justice now because in some ways it, it, it like we've got like barbenheimer this summer that's massive it's done huge 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 numbers at the box office it was huge but even that now you know i'm trying to remember as well with this it was so big um i'm trying to remember what it was in, what would have been in its sphere do you know what i mean like what would have been uh, cuz this is 2003 so 2003 I, i'm trying to remember what were the other the other biggest films um of that time um so we had lord of the rings return of the king matrix reloaded um this i think this would have been the standout film in terms of it being an original kind of story mm. being told in that way and the fact that it was told <clears throat> the fact that it was told and made very clearly told that this is volume one you know it, it, it wasn't a case of this is 
a standalone film. It was really, really clear about the fact that this was this was a film that was going to have a have a follow up. Was was really really special. And like you said, the the cutaway humor and the cutaway culture of it. I've listened to um, I've listened to uh, Tarantino talk about this and talk about him sort of saying it's just it's Gen X. I mean, they're all everyone sort of raised with parents that would have had that in their, in their kind of back pocket, all these little references, they would have got it. And as younger people, you would then get it as well, you know, because Mm. you would get it through osmosis from your parents. So I watched a video this week. It's really interesting. This is really, really funny. Vanity Fair have done a video and it says all 58 references to pop culture within kill bill and uh, and i thought this would be great and i get sort of started going giving it a watch and within sort of it's done it basically goes through the timeline of the film and at every point where there's a pop culture reference it basically pauses the film it's going at like four times speed it basically pauses the film and then shows you where it's at and i noticed within the first 15 minutes they'd done it there were two pop culture references that i'd noticed when watching the film that they didn't pick up on and that's not me saying like oh look at me go to the pop culture references. it's more that they there was just so many packed in that they'd done nearly 60 of them and there were still others that you hadn't picked up on. And it's 60. I mean, how long's the film? Two hours, 20 minutes, something like that? Give or take, yeah. Think about that as a as a filmmaking process to try and cram in that many sort of cut, almost cutaways that are inserted within the film and it not lose the thread. There's a real genius to that. It's like a real, like you said, the, the use of the Ironside music, it, it's really quirky it's really weird but i do in my mind even now if something goes wrong or if something kind of like uh is about to happen that feels big sometimes i'll sort of almost think out loud like this is the point where they how like how effective is it when you see her lock lock her sights on Whatever yeah, one of the pieces of shit are, you know? Cuts in on her eyes, just uh, bang. It's just amazing. And then there's a little bit of an overlay on some. And even that is a that is a, a kind of throwback. There was this really cool moment. Do you know the moment where she goes she's going outside and she's looking for the key she's looking for the the van, the pussy mobile. Yeah, pussy wagon. So, uh, oh sorry, yeah, pussy wagon, sorry. It there is the, the I was just listening as a as a sort of as the film was going along and I thought that music sounds weird. It sounds like a sort of like buddy cop sort of crime theme tune or something. I thought that just sounds like a bit, for for whatever reason, it just kind of like my ears just pricked up and I thought that's quite interesting piece of music to have used. And I looked into it and it was basically the, it was the theme tune from a TV series called Truck, or no, a film in 1974 called Truck Turner, which was um, it, it, it was a it was a, a, essentially a detective thing. It was like a proto version of Shaft. Um, oh no, it was it, it was a kind of no, it was a follow up version of of Shaft. So I think Shaft was 1971 and Truck Turner was 1974, but the music was made by the same person, um, Isaac Hayes. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Why has he used that? 
why has he gone for that particular um that particular piece of music at that particular time. And then I went down a little kind of rabbit hole of doing this research into um, Truck Turner, which was of its time, one of the first um, black detective kind of being the main character, which I think it, it sort of falls into that black exploitation era of, of cinema and film and media and, and culture as well. Um, but that was a 20 second bit of music um, where she was wheeling along in a wheelchair and there was this really clever cut from her being side on wheeling in this wheelchair. It suddenly did a like crash zoom into the logo on the wheelchair as if it was a Ferrari mm-hmm. and she's sort of like wheeling along. And it, it just really struck me that I was able to go down this little rabbit hole where I spent five minutes, 10 minutes going through why that piece of music was so influential or important in the 1970s um, and then what it had been inspired by and then what the the meaning was behind it. And it was a 20-second bit of the film. And, and it sort of really hit me that these are not just, I don't think these are just fun cutaways. I don't think these are just like nice nods to culture. I think they're telling a story within a story. Um, and, and they're, they're, they're actually, there's a lot more layering to this than I, than I realized there's a lot more going on here than I realized. And we'll come onto it a little bit later on, particularly with the, some of the stuff around Bruce Lee and the kind of iconic nature of her wearing the yellow jumpsuit mm. and, and, and why she's wearing that. But it just, it really jumped out at me. I absolutely adored the fact that you are almost challenged to Easter eggs in films now is quite a 2024 thing. You know, it's kind of like, Oh, did you see that Easter egg? Um, a mate of mine, um, I won't say his name just in case he wouldn't want me to. He, he told me an Easter egg that was in Saltburn that I had completely missed the other week. And Go it's on. kind of, well, spoiler alert. If you, do, you haven't watched Saltburn, it just, Heads up! This this is a bit of a spoiler. There's a bit where they're sitting at the ta- the family is sitting around the table, and the daughter is it Venetia? Venetia? The daughter says, "Oh, there's a old myth about the person saying this thing, and then an hour and a half later, she died, and she sort of disappeared, and she died, um, and then her ghost is sort of seen walking around or something like that." Um, do you remember that scene? Do you remember that bit? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. At that time, Felix, who then later dies in the film, walks past the window and walks right the way along the shot. And you just don't notice him because you're captured by what's going on in the foreground. Mm. And I mean, that, that, it, it, that I'm going to go back and sort of like microanalyze that again because that film has just caught me. But I do think that um, this can is. I, can can I just on, give you another one quickly while we're on that? Go on, go on, go on. I, I can't remember if I spoke about it already, but the Please the don't gloves. say if you zoom in really closely while Murder on the Dance Floor is going on, you can get a really good <laughs> look up at it. <laughs> no, the gloves in Oppenheimer. Have we spoken about this before? No, go on. I told you about it? Okay, so I got told about this um, after having watched it the first time. Well, I, I saw it online like, did you see? I was like, no, I didn't. Um, so Florence Pugh's character, um, she, you know, she, she obviously plays Oppenheimer's, I can't remember her actual name, but she was like a, she was, she was on the, the watch list 
from the CIA and everything like that, right? Um, she was a communist, she was an agitator and everything like that. And her family, um, this is in real life, her family maintained all along that she didn't commit suicide, that she was murdered. Um, and she was murdered by the intelligence services because of her relationship with Oppenheimer and how close she was to that and her, you know, being a communist and a rabble rouser and all that type of thing. In Oppenheimer, in the scene when she is committing suicide, when they're showing you that, there is one, and it's maybe 10 frames. There's 10 frames where you see a black gloved hand pushing her head under the water. I did. I did that. Yes. Sorry. I, and, I did yeah, notice that. And, and apparently this was just kind of Nolan keeping it all a bit ambiguous. It was just, it was a little nod to what a lot of people believe her eventual fate was, but didn't want to make it over and didn't want to make that part of the story. But it's his own little kind of nod to that. And I, I hadn't seen it. It's only when I saw it the second time, I was like, oh my God, yeah. The black gloves are there pushing her head under the water. That's really scary. <laughs> it's actually I really creepy. It's really sinister. Uh, mate, I love that. I absolutely adore that about... And this is the kind of the thing I wanted to ask you. Do you think when we watch these films that subconsciously we know what's going on? Do you know what I mean? That, 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 that subconsciously there are things going on in your mind and that on some level your brain is going, that's important, by the way. That bit's important. You you need to focus on that. Or do you think that we're just taking it, you watch it as you watch it and it's just face value and you just go, cool. It just is what it is. Because, I mean, if you think about something like Fight Club, right, mm. you, you, you are uncomfortable all the way through it and there mm. are there – are, the flash frames are a, a little bit more of an obvious thing, but – you're, it, it does feel not quite right and you do yeah. feel unsettled. I wondered whether, I don't know, what do you think to that? Do you think that we are aware of this stuff that's going on in the background or that we do actually have to watch these films two or three times to to actually get it? I think it's a mixed bag, mate, and I think it varies for different reasons. Uh, you know, have, I'm sure you've had times when you've watched a movie when you've not quite been in the mood or when there's been distractions around you and you're kind of, you're picking up on the loose thread of a film, but you're not really losing yourself to it. You may be even just stressed with a work deadline or a life situation, right? And there are other times when you're like, I want to watch this film. You've had a nice big glass of red. You've had a nice meal. You've had a good day. You've had a yeah, you're day ready and, to go. Yeah. yeah. And you're sat there yeah. with the missus chilling out and you're like, bang. And you, almost are like consumed by the film you you feel like you're a part of it you feel like you're in there with them right yeah so yeah. i think it, it it all varies and i think sometimes you can notice other little bits and and sometimes you don't you know i think it's i just wonder with i just wonder with this one i know what you the, mean the, though. I do these little mean. there are these things that grab you you know there are these things that kind of make you go ooh, maybe that just means something or maybe sometimes in a film you just flicker to something and be like that was important and I don't know why it was important but I feel like that's important um one thing I wanted to get onto, which is really really cool now this 
was shot, this film was shot, I believe I'm right in saying this, and apologies if I'm not, but uh, I watched an interview with Uma Thurman where she said the whole thing was shot in 156 days, and that includes part one, or sorry, volume one, and volume two. Did you, I mean, we spoke about this sort of off air, but it, it, it felt really, really, it was really intentional, but also as a viewing experience, really nice. Cause you and I both watched part two as well, right? Yeah, Do you, yeah. you watch volume two? So it felt really, really good watching that and knowing that it was designed in this way, because there's some films that you watch where it will do a second part. And it's quite clear that so much time has passed in between. It just didn't feel like that at all with these two films, really. No, it didn't. I actually, for the first time ever, um, watched them back to back as well. Did it work? It did. Yeah. Oh, um, that's so cool. I think, like, like, I've always been a bit of a, a bit of a, a jeb in the when people are like <laughs> I like part one or I like part two. I am generally like it's one movie, really. It's it's one because they are they're so close. They were released, you know, a, less than a year apart. I think um that's really cool as well i mean that's rare and like you say like the story it's a continuation one or the other but i mean the first one does end on a on a great cliffhanger it is a good story in and of itself wait I so guess. you li- you like the cliffhanger right i do i do and i and i know what people are saying i do think maybe some of the higher the highest highs are in part 1 i think the way it moves the the energy in part one is much bigger. I think the kind of the, the canvases, you know, even having like the little animated section in there at the start of the Oranishi's tale, um, obviously the, the huge climactic battle of that against the crazy 88 is just iconic, you know, utterly iconic. And the build up to it is amazing and it just doesn't disappoint at all. Um, yeah, when you're seeing all the journey of her getting the Hattori Hanso sword and all that type of thing, like it, it you really feel the gravitas of, of 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 what she's doing and the the mission that she's embarking upon. But still, to I, I think part two is often treated as like the you know the ironically enough the bridesmaid, if you like. Um, when I I don't really think that's the case because I think. You know, part one is setting everything up right. There's that air of intrigue. There's the, you know, with each kind of part of the story of each chapter, there's an there's an additional level of intrigue added to the story of Boop, as we know her in the first film. Um, <laughs> it's such a good tone, isn't it? It's yeah. a really if you if you just think about that as a tone, like it's it's so ludicrous and ridiculous. But, but it's but, so know, utterly in keeping with everything. I remember at the time being like desperate to know what her name was. It was just brilliant. It was yeah, such a yeah, it yeah. was such a yeah. a strange little quirk. But the fact that she was just the bride, that she she's the protagonist of the story, and you don't even know what her name is. Um I don't know. I just think I think it was brilliant. Like um it's it's funny. It's because part I was sort of saying this to you as well off air. Part one is essentially a martial arts movie. Part two is a western. You know, it's two of kind of Tarantino's huge influences. All that kind of nineteen seventies exploitation cinema that he has regurgitated throughout his entire cinematic career. No more 
I think, no more effectively and just brilliantly and excitingly deployed as he has done in Kill Bill. Um, yeah, yeah. I think everything, like, you know, really, like, you know, Tarantino, like with Nolan, we sort of, you know, talking about Nolan earlier, Tarantino is another one of these kind of non-linear storytellers, right? He, he, yeah, this yeah. Is a, this is a hallmark of all of his work. But again, in this, like, you know, the use of these chapters, the use of the flashbacks, it's not just stylistic, right? It's it's a, it's a, it's a firm narrative tool. It's adding yeah. such depth to the character of Boop, and it keeps uh, <laughs> it keeps you engaged. Like mate, it really on t- does. On top of you know, you, know you, you don't you you don't know her name, so this is the lead character, and you have no idea what her name is. The title of the film is Kill Bill. You don't know what Bill looks like. No. So you don't see the guy that's supposed to be being killed and you have no idea who the person who's supposed to kill him is, like identity, you know nothing about her, which is just absolutely amazing. And it, and really, it's only in the second, it is, isn't it? It's only in the second film that we get that sequence where Bill kind of turns up on her wedding day and, and, and then you get the sequence right at the end of the second film um, where she sort of, that was one bit that jarred of me in the second film. She she gets sort of shot with truth serum. So she has to be truthful towards him and, and, and sort of give him the reason why she ran away from him in the first place. But it's a really cool device that you have this, um, you have this idea that you you know as much as you need to know for the film to make sense, but you're also totally aware that there's so much still to come within the second film that you're pining for it. But it doesn't really, in the second you don't you don't have to work for any of the information. I feel like they give away quite a lot quite quickly. You know, he, he doesn't sort of, you see Bill very early on, you find out her name very early on, but it just does enough for you that by the time the film's, into the swing by the time that the second film was into the swing you're sort of gasping to find out some of these but facts it's it's, it's, di- it's different stakes though, isn't it? it's different jeopardy because essentially yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the the first one you know Hattori Hanso when he's talking to her all about this is that the warrior they can't be held back by emotion they can't be thinking about what's right and what's wrong they need to focus on their enemy and that's it. And their 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 mission is to defeat the enemy in front of them. Is not to be, you know, held back by the 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 feelings of sympathy for whoever it is that they're fighting. It's you against them, and that's that. And this is, you know, the film is setting you up to show that she's had this horrific thing happen to her. She's been left for dead. She's had her, as far as she knows, her her baby is dead now, taken away from her, her life, her her new husband her new life all those doors have been shut to her she's been locked up in this hospital she can't use her legs anymore she's been the victim of sexual abuse by these people these supposed caregivers inside of this hospital all these horrific things that have happened to her but none of that really is factoring in the here and now each i mean i guess some of it i guess the the fact that she was attacked in the first place was but you know she has this list of people. We see the chapters by the name of the person that she is going to kill, right? And that is that's what's on the agenda. The story, the tonality, everything shifts because we learn at the end of this film, obviously, that her daughter is still alive. Suddenly, that emotional jeopardy, that emotional tension is ranked up. That's why we then begin to know that, boop, 
is Beatrix Kiddo because this isn't just now a revenge mission. This isn't just about killing every single person on that list, even Bill. Things have gotten more complicated and more, you know, more difficult for her, for the warrior, for the for the lonely shepherd to continue on this path of destruction. It gets messier. That's what happens with human beings, right? Things are never straightforward. Um, and to, like, I mean, just to go back to the Hattori Hanzo thing as well, it's such a, that it, there is so much going on in that that scene when she goes and oh, she I gets love it. the. I it's love just it. Just amazing. It's one and of the like, best scenes in the movie, mate. I mean, it, when you think that, when you think that, I mean, it, it's the, that's where we get the, the Lonely Shepherd playing for the first time, isn't it? And I mean, I'm, if you don't know what that bit of music is, it's the, it's the, the kind of um, sort of uh, what are the, what's it? Is it a windpipe that is played on? I think so. Yeah. By George, like I want to say it's George Zamfir is the name of the 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 the, the person who plays the song, but. Um, you have that quote where he says, Tori Hanzo says, revenge is never a straight line. It's a forest. And like a forest, it's easy to lose your way, to get lost, to forget where you came in, to forget where you came in. And then you have this kind of amazing sort of rite of passage. It's really beautiful. Him sitting there revealing the sword. And then he says, I'm finished doing what I swore an oath to God 28 years ago to never do again. Uh, I've created something that kills people. And in that purpose, I was a success. I've done this because philosophically I'm sympathetic to your aim. I don't believe that we ever really find out what Bill did to Hattori Hanzo, do we? No. We don't, we, so it's just, it just shows you that Bill's a, a slime bag. He seems to leave yeah. this trail wherever he goes. You know, when when they first meet Pai Mei, he... Uh, ends up getting a kicking doesn't yeah. it from by may so him, yeah yeah um and then it says i can tell you with no ego this is my finest sword if on your journey you should encounter god god will be cut and i thought wow what a great line and and then i saw someone say on a sort of on a, an analysis um that, that there's a dual meaning to that is is the idea that you'll the sword is of so incredible that it can cut anything and it's the best sword that he's ever made. But also to link to the previous quote, um, you won't know the difference between what you're killing. You'll get lost. You'll end up cutting God because it, that's what the, the sword can do. It can, mm. it can help you sort of lose yourself and turn you into something that you don't want to be. Um, and then you see, as you sort of rightly say, you don't basically, you don't see until the very end of the film when she has this realization that her daughter is still alive, that she's something else. You know, she was just on this flat, cold, I'm going to get revenge. Um, and then you sort of see, you actually see her sort of discover that she's she's a whole lot more than that as well. She kind of suddenly is snapped into reality. But I just love the duality of that that idea that she was being given a sword that was basically going to go and pave the way for her to cause this much damage, but also was going to lose her in the process. And it's actually her meeting her daughter that kind of brings her back again. Um, and we also kind of saw, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd put this a little bit further down, but I wondered if we could sort of jump onto this bit. Um, the, the idea of the bits of dialogue 
I thought it was really fascinating that that Tarantino used Bill's whole Superman, my favorite superhero thing. <laughs> I thought that was a really, it, and it, it was really cool because you actually texted me about this and been like, what an amazing bit of dialogue. But it struck me at the time when I was listening, I was like, something's going on here. Again, it was like, this is really weird. This guy speaking for a prolonged period of time, but it just had this feeling like this was important. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And you sort of feel like, God, what, what this guy's such a smug tool. And then once he lands the punch, it really, it sort of hits you. Well, I, but the thing I particularly love about it is that when, you know, he's delivered this big monologue and, you know, to essentially make this point, you, Beatrix Kiddo, can never be this normie. You can never put on that normal person suit the same way Superman couldn't as Clark Kent. But like how he's, like you say, he's gone on this two, three minute big ramble and she just says, ah, the point emerges. You know, yeah, he's in yeah. like, yeah, great. Yeah, Bill, we know you love to cool, waffle cool. on. And it just felt to me like that was Tarantino, the two sides of Tarantino in that, yes, you know, he can be this pretentious guy that loves these kind of big waffling monologues throughout his movies equally he's got a great sense of humor and he can be self-effacing and that felt like almost like a little message to himself there as in like look i'm gonna let you i'm gonna let you have this little silly monologue about superman and everything in the middle of this film that seems a bit pretentious and seems somewhat contrived but equally i'm going to use the character of Beatrix Kiddo to eviscerate myself and realize that yeah. yes, I am being this nerdy dude, you know. As, uh, so, as, let, uh, do you know what? This is kind of like perfect timing, and I want to like, I'll use this as a bit of a springboard. Then I, 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 I saw a couple of things, and just watching this film weirdly like changed my mind on Tarantino because mm. um, I had, I think I had a bit of a preconceived notion about him. Um, well, not a presentation. I, I just felt about him a certain way, particularly off the back of us doing Pulp Fiction, watching interviews with him, seeing him sort of really going for people in in interviews at times and getting quite aerated about the idea of the violence and and perhaps the way that people perceived his films. Um, and I watched a, I watched an interview with Uma Thurman and she said he is an original thinker. Yes, he does this stuff where he kind of makes reference to cultural artifacts and, and sort of like does these cutaway moments and bits of humour. But he's learned the, the filmmaking and the style of filmmaking that he wants to create himself it's kind of you know when you're a you're a kid and you sort of um i don't know I, I don't know how many people will be able to relate to this but if you ever had powerpoint as a kid or if you ever had an early video editing tool you just start pissing around with it and you just make videos or you'd make bits of music or you'd make powerpoint shows and you'd learn by doing you just kind of crack on and just yeah do some people do this with um some people do this with playing an instrument they just pick up the instrument and just learn by doing they can hear how the instrument works and they'll just find their way and they won't necessarily go down the conventional routes that other people will to learn a specific skill 
And so Uma Thurman says in this interview, she's like, he's an original thinker in that he has his own way of thinking and doing things. And then I saw an interview where someone was like really going at him about the violence in Kill Bill. And they were like, why does it need to be so violent? Why do you have to make it like this? And then he just shouts back, because it's fun. <laughs> um, and and it sort of jumped out at me in that moment. I was like, oh, people want to. And look, this might be a really obvious kind of realisation to have, but maybe that's just me being kind of a bit of an idiot that I haven't come across before, is that people want Tarantino to apply their standards to his films. They want to push onto him the way that they feel and they don't want to discuss with him about the film to hear what he thinks. They want to push at him to say, you know what? I was wrong. You're right. It's too violent. And so the thing that I kind of came away from this film thinking was actually on, on some level, I can just appreciate the fact that he's just creating a piece of cinema here and going, there you go. Like that's just this violence is a stylistic thing that I'm choosing because I'm making the film and that will come with the good and the bad. It will come with criticism and it will come with um, people that like it and people that absolutely despise it. And in some cases, people that are just flat outright disgusted by it. But at the end of the day, like this piece of cinema that he's creating, he's just putting it out there and it exists and it's made and cinema as you and i say all the time is so subjective some people just love certain films and other people absolutely despise them but he is right on some level just not to care what anyone thinks you know because he just he's made something that exists and that in itself is enough you know he's created something from nothing and then put it out you know I mean, so nolan critique I sent you out like it, it, it yeah, you know, Nolan yeah, yeah, yeah. spoke about this a lot this week when he's talking to addressing the kind of New York critics um, when he won an award there. And he, you know, he sort of did it in between the, his joke about the Peloton instructor who said that they thought Tenet <laughs> was, was good, too impossible it? to understand. But yeah, he, you know, he was talking about. Wait, you should say that. Explain that very quickly because if people haven't seen this, this is absolutely brilliant. It's so good. So, so Nolan essentially is saying that he is in the middle of uh, Peloton class. Um, trying to keep fit, obviously. And in the middle of this class, the Peloton instructor, just as as one of the asides that they do when they're talking, just says, I watched Tenet last night. Have any of y'all watched Tenet? Um, I couldn't understand <laughs> what the fuck was going on. You know, I feel like I needed a PhD to understand that. Two and a half hours of my life, I'm never getting back. What and a he line said, like, as well. What yeah, a and line. he said he was just like, oh, wow. Okay, great. I'm just kind of being insulted in the middle of my, <laughs> my workout. <laughs> but the internet actually managed to track down. Because, you know, it always leads people to be like, did this actually happen or not? Um, but yeah, the internet did track down this uh, this comment from the uh, from the Peloton instructor. And yeah, we, we see Nolan being insulted. But he goes on to just essentially talk about the art that he creates um, and it's for him. And if he feels that he can justify or he has a rationale for why he's approached something in a certain way, that's enough for him. And he understands that that won't be for everybody and that people will have 
criticisms or will not I think I think they're probably predominantly talking about the lack of coverage of you know the Japanese people in Oppenheimer um that's I don't know about you but that felt to me like kind of what they were talking around with that part um and I think like with Tarantino it's, it's very similar look you know Tarantino is he's not a cookie cutter director Tarantino is you know, love him or hate him, he is one of the most standout filmmakers of all time. You know, he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Um, he's cultivated a completely unique style um, that has been aped by plenty of people. You know what a Tarantino movie is, and that says something, you know. Um, yeah. Love it or hate it, he's like we're talking about sort of near the start of the pod, you know, to manifest an idea and to turn it into something is an achievement in itself to do it in such a prescriptive and unique fashion as he does, I think is, is astonishing. And yeah, I I know he's not a perfect guy. I get that he's quite irritating as well. I find him quite (laughs) irritating when I see him in interviews, but he's a nerd, you know, he's a film nerd. He loves films. He's so, invested in films and the film the cultural things that he collects you know he is this type of magpie we've spoken about kind of cultural magpies before as filmmakers and things like that and he is this he is this kind of magpie Uh, i think we maybe spoke about him with pulp fiction being a magpie um and i just he's he's a type of filmmaker that just makes me love movies you know this yeah. and this is this is what this film is like you know it just transports me back to being where however old i was 17 18 when i managed to sneak in and see this and it blew my fucking socks off watching it thinking like oh my god i have never seen a film like that and to be brutally honest i've never seen a film like this since either as much yeah. as people have tried to uh to to recreate it or repackage it or repurpose it the magic of this film is is something else to me like every beat of it is just brilliant i think it sends sort of you know like we're talking about the cliffhanger at the end of the film when you know when um bill is talking to sophia is it i think the character's name is and he says you know does she know that her daughter's still alive and then cut to black the good shepherd it like ramps up and you're just yeah. like bang wow man that's like it's so it hits so hard and when you see the you know when you see like you know the good shepherd i think it's also played during when she's training um at hattori hanzo when he's written bill on the window and she scrubs it out after he's gone away and it's just brilliant man i think it's i think it's a pure work of art i love it and whatever i know i know people find it a bit cliche god you're this tarantino bro but you know i've got to be true to myself and i just i think this film is it is just a really good film mate oh, it's, it's just it's just, just a really really good i, I film. don't bore it. i've seen this film 20 times do you know what i mean and still just watching it i'm still just captivated excited by every frame all the dialogue all the conversations i'm just sucked into them you know um, yeah i mate, i i i haven't watched it in a while so when watching it again was really really lovely i feel like because we've done we, we've done a kind of nice talk up of it we should probably do what i'll do uh, let's do the fine one and war crime section and chuck in here a, a little other we can do this potentially just a little bit first so this this film 
a lot of people hold this up as a, a kind of not necessarily a feminist film, but an iconic film for feminists, mm. uh, if that makes sense. And I think in doing my reading this week and kind of watching the film again, because you know it's a Tarantino film, I don't feel as though this is this is something that I would watch and I would look at and I would go, yeah, this is this is a feminist dream, this film. It really kind of like nails all the key markers for what you you want to see. And even though a, a lot of the a lot of the film, the protagonist or the bride is kick ass and an absolute boss. I wouldn't necessarily say that her kind of the future of what she's doing is totally in her own hands, right? Like there's the theme of the film is, is basically revenge. She's out to get mm. revenge for what a man did to her um, or, or what people did to her at the request of a man. Um, so I'm, I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say this is kind of like a, a, a real sort of um, a, a beacon for feminists to kind of gravitate towards in terms of filmmaking but and this probably kind of leads us into mvp territory i do think uma thurman as a kind of leading actress is absolutely stunning in this film she is just wonderful she is amazing pretty much in every single facet of the film, you know, she, she's one minute, she's vulnerable. The next minute, she's absolutely incredible from a martial arts point of view. I mean, she'd barely done any martial arts. She, she sort of said that she wasn't, she'd never even played sports, you know, as a kid, she wasn't even sporty. And she just carries the film in such a way that I think even though Tarantino's filmmaking, like he's gone to great lengths to try and make sure that there is this kick-ass woman and character that is the one beating the shit out of everyone. Mm. Um, I think it's actually more a case of that she's an iconic character that you can fall in love with as a feminist, as opposed to the film itself is feminist in its nature. Sorry if I've given you a little bit of word soup and word salad. There, no, but, but you I, know I, I think mean. I would maybe disagree with you a bit though. No, go, think, go for it, mate. I think, I think the film is more feminist than perhaps you say that it is. It right, just okay. in so much as, look, I think when we consider the time at which this was made, right, still... It, it, <sighs> Strong female protagonists were few and far between. You got like Ellen Ripley mm. and like the Aliens movies and things like that. But still, the fact that you're even struggling to recall them at this point. But this is a film that's completely flipped, I guess, uh, gender stereotypes, gender roles. They're all kind of complex, um, central female characters to this, all with their own agency, all with their own motivations. Um, who they're not ever presented in a in a sexualized fashion, I wouldn't say. Um, I guess we, we might say that Uma Thurman is wearing those, I guess that, that the kind of the biker outfit, which is kind of tight fitting, but it's still not it's still not an overt it's it's a feminine costume, but I wouldn't say it's an overtly, you know, it, she hasn't got cleavage hanging out and that type of thing, right? As as you kind of 
would see in cinema at that time where women were generally and still at this time where women are generally sort of reduced to kind of sex objects if you like perhaps the 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 one time when Uma Thurman is kind of dressed in that kind of way is again when she's in a costume when she goes to visit Hattori Hanso and she wants to seem like this silly blonde American tourist so she's wearing like a crop top and that type of thing and it's but that's all feels very intentional yeah I think that um, is and but I don't think I don't think the jumpsuit is a her wearing the yellow jumpsuit I think that's kind of that's very that's not for me that's very much a throw to Bruce Lee right it's not about yeah, it's not yeah, about trying yeah. to sexualize her in any way. It's trying to be like, it's it, so that that jumpsuit was in the last film that Bruce Lee ever made. That was like the, the, what he was wearing. You know, he, he sort of died whilst filming. God, I'm full going way of the dragon yeah. here. But um, <laughs> that was like, it, it, I think the film was called Game of Death. And that's where that kind of, that yellow jumpsuit comes from. So I don't feel like you so there's it's not as much as I can remember, there's no like lingering shots, super close-ups of a backside, for example. Do you know what I mean? It's not it, it doesn't I don't know, it doesn't feel that way anyway. No, exactly. And so I think I think in 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 many ways that you know I, to call something like you know to call it a feminist film. I don't know. I don't really know how how does one define a feminist film? Does the, does the film have to be overtly about feminism, or does the film just have to showcase you know many themes and you know it it doesn't rely on tropes that otherwise would you know demean or diminish women? I don't know. I don't know how one would define whether or not something is a feminist film. But at the same time, I do feel that this film. It isn't tokenistic. I do think that these are genuinely, really kind of badass, hard nut women in this film that the film centers around. Um, and I think that's kind of cool for what, 2002 or whenever yeah, the film but, came out? To, yeah, 2003. I guess in terms of when I say like a feminist movie, I guess I'm talking from the lens or the kind of like the eye line the film was being sort of looks through mm. and I feel like perhaps maybe she is maybe she's fine I look I it, one is obviously very intentional like you say a lot of it is intentionally done like she's breaking down a lot of this stuff like for example even the the way that she's framed in 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 a lot of the the framing of the the shots is deliberately putting her in positions where she is sort of uncomfortable in the frame it's it's not it, it's not like like you said it's not shots of of her that are deliberately kind of sexualized it's it's often her looking very very uncomfortable or awkward or um even if you just take the bit in the car where she's trying to wiggle her toes you know that is it is a completely unflattering thing um but Mike, I, I guess when I was watching it, the thing that I was trying to sort of wrangle, wrangle with was, is this, is she fighting against the male gaze or are we still seeing this, for example, the fact that, she, you know, when she's in the hospital and you've got, what is it, what's his name? Buck, who likes to fuck? Is that yeah. it? And you sort of see the way that he is and then you see the way that the bloke is who's coming in as well. I'm still kind of wondering whether 
whether we see that sort of whether we see that necessarily from her point of view. Do you know what I mean? So I'm doing a horrible job of explaining this. You kind of see her beat the shit out of this guy, but it's it's almost it's almost told through his lens. You know, you're you're almost getting it from Buck's point of view. Um and that, that's why I'd say, like, she, as the character, she's absolutely amazing for it. And she's a, a brilliant character. But the film itself, at times, is maybe not. Do you I'm think I'm, I'm, inter- I'm interested in that? Like, I don't know. Because I, I, I still, I don't really agree. <laughs> still. No, but that, I think that's no, okay. Like, I, think I think that's think completely the, okay. I think it's showing you, like, completely how borrowed those guys are and that, you know, how they're just. They're just fleas. The the reason why they're able to do that to her is because she's incapacitated. Um, and as soon as she's even half able to, she just destroys these kind of repugnant men. Um, and it, it just highlights just how weak and pathetic they are, how they're nothing to somebody like her who is the Terminator. Like she's a, she's a complete machine. And the complexity of her character I love because – we have this character who, as Bill says, you know, albeit in the second film, you're a killer. You know, you're still a killer. You, uh, she is. She's this killer. She enjoyed it. She gets off on it. She or, or gets off is maybe not the right term, but she she enjoys killing people, right? Um, he's, you know, he says, did it? All, did everyone feel good? You know, and she's like, yeah. And she cries and she, she can't stand that. But the complexity comes in in her character and that she has to go from being this assassin this elite the best female warrior on the face of the planet as they say to suddenly just being a mother you know that that kind of that that instinct of hers kicks in that she's yeah she says when she's in the in the hotel room and again in the second film but still the revelation came to her that even though she was like the the strongest female on the face of the planet in that moment in time, she was worried about her baby. And it's just, it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of evolution to that character. It, it, it is, it, it is, and maybe, yeah, I guess it's, it's a male filmmaker telling the story. So it probably lacks a level of insight and complexity that a female filmmaker might have brought to proceedings. But I still think it was just a very interesting thing to look at the idea of, how motherhood not can change yeah i guess motherhood would change somebody how it is an evolution how it is a it's a new life not only in a literal sense but in a metaphorical sense for the person who becomes a mother you know yeah no also i mean it was i thought in the second film that was kind of showing you that actually on some level it makes her more deadly as well being a mother actually makes her even stronger yeah. Um, which was quite cool, but then uh, it was something we missed in the, in the missed earlier on. The uh, when he says about you know isn't that the perfect metaphor when the daughter is stamps on the on the fish, um, and you kind of almost get this little inkling that the daughter is that it's something that might be innate, you know, something that mm. maybe you can't fight because a daughter is already killing a a fish on the on the floor. Um, just to go back to the uh, the fine one and walk home section, mm. um, one bit that we do need to kind of sort of touch on. I, did you watch the footage back of her driving the car that she said was I, unsafe? Have you seen? Yeah, that? I did. Yeah, it's it's quite unpleasant, isn't it? Really, it really is. Especially like, considering that 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 sequence is still used in the film. Yeah, 
mad. So if you don't know about this, basically Uma Thurman had kind of flagged that she felt that a car, a stunt car, was unsafe to drive. Um, and Style over substance, wasn't it? Yeah, and 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 essentially, the, she loses control of the car, driving quite quickly on a on a really kind of strange road to use. Which is, I mean, it makes it into the film, um, but then crashes the car, and she did permanent damage, I think, to her neck. I want to say, and to her knees as well, and to her knees, incredible. Um, and she, the 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 footage is all online. I mean, it's. It, it's interesting to to well, I mean, it's kind of horrible, but it is interesting to see the reactions of the people at the time because Tarantino is clearly really, really shaken, as you would be shaken by it. But he's since said that it's like the biggest correct, uh, biggest regret of his of his career, I think, or biggest ruined their relationship life. for a long time. I think they've reconciled things now in the past few Have years. They? Actually, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know um, that. Because uh, from my understanding, they were they were very good friends as well. Um, yeah, yeah. And that understandably ruined it because she flagged with him. From from what I've read on this, she flagged with him numerous occasions. It wasn't just like a one, oh, I don't really know about this car. She was apparently on at him, like, this car isn't safe. This car's a death trap. It's a piece of crap. I'm, I don't want to drive it. Get a stunt double to do it. If you, if you have to use this car, just get a stunt. And he refused. He went back down. Um, and she ended up doing it, and then that went and happened. And so you can imagine um, that that uh, you know that, that 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 obviously didn't go down very well, um, to 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 say the least. Uh, you know, it, it, I think it as well from that point it it brought sort of the issue of like onset safety, especially regarding things like stunts, into the spotlight, and it prompted like a, a number of discussion discussions within the film industry about the importance of prioritizing the well-being of actors and stuff during production um like i say you know it's probably Tarantino scary has, isn't it? it's yeah probably, I, I, I think probably, he has acknowledged and expressed regret over the incident it it, it it feels like you know with him it's 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 not and it's genuinely not to make an excuse it's not just me fanboying him um i think it's kind of similar to to what we've said about Kubrick and such in the past that, you know, I think to, to these type of guys, to these guys lost in, in, in this, in this zone, the, the art, the thing that they're creating trumps all, right? They have a vision, they have a, a a utopian vision of how this is going to be created, which is everybody doing their role in the way that they tell them to do. Like, it's almost as if, the human beings are commodified that they become yeah, their props brushes. Yeah. Brushes for his canvas. If you like, um, just do what he does guided by his hand. And I guess they must just lose sight of the fact that they are still working with people and, uh, <laughs> you know, this stuff happens. I, I, I think there's, I think there is this kind of warped fucked up mentality with some creatives where they look at this and think, this movie's here in a hundred years' time. None of us yeah, are. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You'll still be talking about this, and my legacy will live on. Um, I mean, there is also that that there's stories that like he that he there's a a scene where uh, the bride gets someone spits in her face, and apparently that was Quentin Tarantino that did that. He was the one who spat. 
Um, and there's a scene where she's choked in the fight against the crazy 88 and Quentin Tarantino did that as well, which kind of tethers to the car sequence because I believe he says that he did those things because it was important that he did them and no one else did them. And there was an element of trust there um, that she had with him from, as you say, them having a friendship and and them having a kind of um, the, the spitting thing is kind of weird, though, right? It does make you wonder. Yeah. Like, couldn't have been a sort of. Couldn't you have used like a turkey baster or something? Do you know what I mean? I know it's like, like just squeezed something. You a squeeze toy that would have just a toy gun would have done it. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of a bit unnecessary. But again, I think that comes back to the thing that you were saying about the artist getting lost in the art that they that, no, this needs to be authentic someone's got to do it only i know how this needs to do it. only i know how to do this and you trust me because i'm the director so i'm going to do it like this i think that's i don't know i found that a bit weird when when i was sort of reading up about it i thought that was quite quite strange that it um yeah that it that, that it, it but we we said this in pulp fiction as well you know in the the sequences in pulp fiction that were the most shocking that sometimes the bits where he came in and he was like, I'll take it from here, you know? And I think, I think she even said something about this, that, that, that he creates his own world where he kind of makes up the rules within it. And I think it's almost like at times, just from what she was saying that he was quite enjoying the fact people were saying, well, you can't do that. And he was like, well, watch me sort of thing. Mm. Um, and and so I think that's probably how you get to this point. Um, but I did, final question on this, mate. I did wonder, having had all these things that we've just spoken about, do you think there is any pathway to there being a third Kill Bill film? I think it's unlikely because Tarantino wants to do 10, isn't it? I think he wants to do 10 movies. Um, and now the only way, because I was talking about this with, with Charlotte, so there's... Um, is it Copperhead's daughter, isn't it? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, Beatrix gives her that out in that, doesn't he? You know, she says, if you sort of grow up and you're still bitter about it, I'll be waiting for you. There's also BB, who we've sort of said could be played by Maya Hawke. I, I think to me, the reality is more that it will be something like that, that it would be a Maya Hawke against Copperhead's um, that daughter. That could be, yeah. Yeah. Picked up by Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. if 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 Miramax still own the rights to it, it would be one of those things that maybe would be get taken out of Tarantino's hands that maybe it would get made into a Amazon Prime series or something like that. That that's more how I could see that coming to fruition if it ever did. Um but I think Tarantino has spoken about this before in the past. I think at one point he said he was tempted to do it and then sort of put it to bed because he just didn't want to revisit it. He wanted to leave it where yeah. it was. Um, so no, I, I can't see Tarantino making Kill Bill 3 personally, but I'm not saying, you know, we see this like IP and stuff, you know, it flies all over the place now. There's various, you know, there's a bloody James Bond game show on Amazon. Uh, I kind of hope you know. with this, it just won't be touched. I kind of hope. That's, that's just... hoping for a lot, mate. Yeah, or just for at least for a little bit longer. Um, on the MVP front, I don't think we can really give it to anyone no, other than no, than Uma Thurman. It's just she's astonishing incredible. in this, like you said earlier. Like she just is 
A real peak of her powers, right? She's unbelievable. unbelievable. She is everything in this film. You know, she's Bitch, just, you don't um, have a future. <laughs> amazing. And the fights, it like, I mean, yeah, I get, could carry on for hours on this. Um, but w- what we will do before I reveal my film for next week, do you fancy a little IMD ball? Go on then. Um, let's bring in Purds. Be fucking Arsenal. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, uh, Come on. Fucking be Arsenal. Here we go yeah. then. Oh, sorry. So, sorry. <laughs> you, you, you've come in with a bang. Um, Alex Purdy, welcome into the pod, producer Purds. Uh, the subject matter for I Am Ball today. Now, because we haven't had many films yet so far... <laughs> Uh, Jack has just wonderfully teed this up for me. To my knowledge, Quentin Tarantino has directed 10 films, which gives us five pens each. And I'm going to, because you haven't been privy to this subject, Jack, up until now, I'll give you all 10 films so we don't have to play the memory game. So the films are Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volume 1, Kill Bill Volume 2, Death Proof, which was kind of a hybrid of two films, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Those are our 10 films. Purdy, you can be scorekeeper. Jack, as you went first last week, I feel it's only right that I can go first because you're. Th- are you 3 new up? I am feeling that, yeah. Jesus. Um, and so hopefully I can get myself back into the game and then I'll reveal to you what, what we're doing next next week because I'm very excited for that one. Are you ready, Alex Purdy? Let's play ball. Let's play. God, I'm going to go with Pulp Fiction to kick us off. Wow. I don't think there'll be any beating that. So I might throw this one. Ooh, clever. And say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Can I tell you if there's any beating that? No. Or shall I just... Okay, Absolutely no, not. not. I'm trying to poor, ruin this. I need this. I'm 3-0 uh, down. It is, it is a Pulp Fiction win there. Hangs 1-0. One one nil. Nil. Eat my gold. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you what, let's let's do it alternates this week because it'd be cheating otherwise. Because I'll just end up stealing. No, no, don't, mate. No, I'm not. Gonna, don't censor us. It's fine. It's fine. No. <laughs> that, sounded so that sounded so That sounded so pleasant. No, no, no. Don't change it, mate. No, no, no. no, no it's all right, mate. I don't. It's I don't fine, need a pat fine. on the head. No. <laughs> right. Okay. So once upon a time in Hollywood's gone. I will go for Jackie Brown. Okay. Let's go with Kill Bill Volume 1 then. It's close-ish. Give us the numbers. Ooh. It's a 7.5 plays an 8.2 in Jack's favour. One all. Oh no! Uh, um, let's do Django Unchained. Kill Bill Volume 2. <laughs> Django Unchained wins. Oh, oh shit, really? Oh. 8.5 to Kill Bills, 8, Volume 2, 8. Wow, needed that. This for the win. This is just so unfair this week. I'll go mm. Reservoir Dogs. Oh, 
Inglorious Bastards. Oh my god. When I tell you there's point one in it, there is point one in it. <laughs> He's mm. not lying. He's not lying. To all, Jack. No! No, no! Yeah, boy. Okay, so we're left with. Only one film. Death Proof and The Hateful Eight. Okay, yeah, sorry. Oh! I'm gonna go for The Hateful Eight. Well, there it is. I've got one option to go, so. What was it, sorry? Death Proof or The Hateful Eight. And I'm going for The Hateful Eight. Proof. Oh wow! It's, there's a there's point eight in it, so someone's someone's one big here. And Hainsy wins with the hateful eight. Oh, Ooh. I needed that so badly. Thanks to everyone. I I didn't. <laughs> cheers to bit for being nice and letting me win that one. Um, would you like <laughs> Would you like to know what we're gonna do next week? What What was uh, was Pulp Fiction the highest rated, Purdy? Yeah, it was. You've missed out his two episodes of CSI. Very good. Um, yeah, bring that music down and let me tell you what we go going on next week. I want to oh, keep, I want to keep the octane high. I want to keep pushing on with the action, and I want to keep us kind of like going with the big hitters. Um, believe it's on Netflix, um, and I believe this is the first time that we would have done it's probably yeah it's probably one of the only times you could ever do these two together um De Niro Pacino Heat oh mate I've been wanting to watch that for a while again you know yeah this is a that's a like I, I it popped up on my timeline the other day and someone put the full 10 to 15 minute cut of the car chase sequence where they're sort of going through the streets it's phenomenal. I'm, yeah, I'm buzzing, and I believe it's a Netflix jobby as well. You know whose favourite film this is as well? Oh, I do. Oh, <laughs> you I, know, know, I, I do, do as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 buzzing. Absolutely buzzing to watch it. Purdy, thank you for jumping on. Thank you. Um, well, that, you know Heat's three hours, lads. Like, probably skip that one. <laughs> what, like you did Kill Bill? Yeah. No, I watch will watch Kill that. Bill. Yeah, I will yeah, watch that one. It's genuinely really good. Is he actually okay. three hours? It's two two fifty. Yeah. God, apologies to everyone. Um, <laughs> at BYOB Pod on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and you can of course subscribe to us on uh, wherever you get your podcast from and YouTube. Make sure you do that. Uh, we'll see you all next week. Bye bye bye. I'm secretly fuming you beat me on IMDb, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll see that all over my face. <laughs> 